0: It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
1: Ocean Breeze, tropical beach,
2: pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on.
3: This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney Pixar's Inside Out 2.
1: It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh, no. Hello. I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions.
3: Disney and Pixar's Inside Out
2: 2.
1: There's a part two? We're going!
2: Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now.
3: Welcome to the podcast formerly known as Access Atlanta from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. You may have noticed that the name on our logo has changed a little bit. That's just a placeholder because we're currently developing a brand new show that will have a new name and a new sound. And this week, we're going to start things off with a little sneak peek at what we're working on here. I'm joined by entertainment reporter Rodney Ho. Ligaya Figueres is off this week, so Yvonne Zussel talks food and dining. And we'll start out with some of the week's hottest topics. (laughs) First up on this week's episode, we're going to take a look at some hot topics. One of those changes that's happened is a WSB-TV anchor. She's new there, but uh, she may seem familiar to you. Is that right, Rodney?
0: Oh, that's right. Her name is Karen Greer. She's been in the market since 1989. Wow. She sure doesn't look it. Let's just say that. (laughs) But she joined uh, WSB-TV at the 5 p.m. anchored spot yesterday. Uh, which would be the sixth. So there was a six month non-compete. She came from CBS 46, but she couldn't be on air for six months. That's kind of a standard contractual thing when somebody switches local stations. Um, But she came, yeah, she started at a station called WGNX. It was like an independent station back in the late eighties, early nineties. And then CBS took it over. And so she worked for CBS for a while. And then she went to 11 Alive for 16 years, went back to CBS 46. And then after, unfortunately, after Jovita Moore died um, last year, brain cancer they had an opening and while she's not technically a replacement for Jovita, she's one of the three evening female anchors. They, they have four hours to fill at night, four o'clock, five, six and 11. And they have two hours for Wendy Corona. She's going to take five o'clock, like I said, and Linda Stofer takes 6 PM. So, okay. it's, uh, but Karen, um, you know, she, she's, Managed to survive, and that says a lot in you know, and she's a familiar name. I don't think WSB normally hires anchors from other stations, but I right, think Karen, it, section, Karen yeah. has such a deep connection to the community that I guess they figured she'd be a reasonable, you know, person to bring in that everybody knows. Right. Yeah, I mean, she's
3: been around, you said, for a very long time. I mean, are, are there other... People with that sort of longevity uh, in I mean, town?
0: Not news side. I mean, Jeff Hollinger's been around yeah. a little bit longer, but he was doing sports for a good portion right. of that. Um, so uh, he's probably the closest comparison. Yeah. Um, but, you know, other than that, yeah, most people haven't been here nearly that long.
3: Yeah. But, I, you know, I guess there's probably a, a benefit to having a familiar face
0: there. Um, oh, absolutely. That I can't imagine in this day and age, you know, broadcast TV has its issues and local news has the challenges of people, you know, going to streaming and getting their news elsewhere. So they've got to find any excuse to get people to watch.
3: Right. Yeah. But you know, a lot of that streaming, you can't necessarily get the the local stuff, I suppose.
0: No, no. Um,
3: You know, they, they've expanded. They've, I mean, they've
0: added a lot of local news. I think it's cheaper from a, you know, they, if you buy syndicated product, like a talk show, you, you have to share like the ad space, but if you just add another news hour, it doesn't cost as much, I think. So that's right. why a lot of news stations, or a lot of TV stations now, you know, run like 8, 10, 12 hours of news, local news a day, right. you know, recycling the news constantly for hours on it. I think Fox 5 runs from like 4.30 a.m. to 11 a.m., wow. like non like, almost six straight hours. Oh,
3: it's a, a lot of local news. It really is. I, I mean, mean I don't amazing. think they expect
0: anybody to watch all six hours in yeah. a row, so I'm sure there's <laughs> a lot of recycling.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to me, you know, you see all these ads for, they, they try these new things and they have, you know, it's like, you know, get your morning started with us or whatever, it, like, you know, some, some – godforsaken hour of the morning uh, you know there are people up that I'm I'm up pretty early myself but but I don't automatically turn on the news no, so. but <laughs> but if you do you
0: get to watch endless amounts of Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker ads oh I guaranteed bet. in yeah. that yeah.
2: case I'm gonna start watching of course because <laughs> I, I love mean, who loves ads.
0: watching those ads over and over again oh yeah seven twelve fifteen times yes yeah, the delightful. best I get
3: I the get best. more than enough of that just watching Jeopardy so <laughs> it's like oh. or
2: listening to anything on the radio. Yeah, yes. it's it's, <laughs> it's
3: frightening how many, and, you know, do those ads ever change anybody's mind? Well, I, yeah. I, I, it, it always baffles me, the amount Are
0: of trying? Yeah, they might be trying to convince one person out of a million, right. yeah, it seems yeah. like, yeah, I, I don't Every know. Every vote counts, Rodney. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's really the whole point. It's a, it's about broad awareness. I guess I have no idea. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm a, you, yeah. we can go ask Bluestein about it over in, you know in his neck of the woods oh, on that one so. Oh, I'm
3: sure. I'm sure that they've analyzed that sort of stuff in the past. Yes. And, yeah. You know, done, done a deep dive
0: on but, on how. I mean, it must be somewhat effective if they're spending that much money. I think I don't no, know, you, or it's yeah. just a boon for the local TV stations. That's what it is. They, you know, obviously in Atlanta they made a boon in 2020. They were making oh, right. boku bucks right yeah. into the holidays yeah. with the mm-hmm. Senate runoffs. So I yeah. think one of the stations like added an extra newscast to, at one time to just take advantage of all that. Huh. Wow, you know, all the advertising—that's amazing.
3: Well, yeah, that we we got way off topic there somehow with uh, <laughs> Don't we starting out with uh, Karen Greer, at, at, who you can now see on WSB, uh, and moving on to uh, another thing that's kind of fun: Daisy Days at Arabia Mountain. I love Arabia Mountain. I don't it's know. Lovely. It's lovely. I, I know. Do too. It's beautiful. there. It's, it's
2: one of my favorite places. It, me in too. In Metro Atlanta. It, yeah. it, it, it almost one one feels like favorite. a different planet. Of, yeah. The rock
0: formations make you feel it's like true. you're not even on Earth at certain points.
2: You know? yeah. yeah. And it's so nice and flat that like anybody can hike it. I right. feel like it's very accessible right. it's for not, lots it, of different types of people. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: And, and I mean, you know, I don't know if you've ever gone to the like around the mountain, the, the long hiking trails that, that are sort of attached to there. I have Mm-mm. not. There are some really, I mean, very secluded places that that are around the mountain hmm. um, it's a it's a little bit of a hike but you know it's yeah. never um you know it's never a difficult hike or anything like that it's right. just kind of long, long yeah. and um but it's it's just beautiful yeah and and you know you Perfect. won't run into too many people but anyway daisy days is one of two times a year where it really pops with color in spring they have the red diamorpha, mm-hmm. which is beautiful so pretty love I, I love that yeah. Uh, but in fall, they have these daisies, which they're not, They're I don't think they're technically daisies. They're actually a <laughs> form of sunflower, but I think they only grow on, you know, these granite outcrops like that. And they're yellow. Yeah, and they're yellow. Yeah, okay. Um, so
0: nothing to do with the yellow daisy festival. No, it's no, happen. it's That's, nothing
3: like yeah, that. I was thinking But I, that but same I think thing. that, you know, they probably <laughs> similarly, because they're yellow daisies in fall as well. And I think right. that they might bloom at a similar time. It's sort of mid-September. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, Arabia Mountain is beautiful anyway. I love to go anytime, but it's even prettier when you have these pops of color everywhere.
0: How long do the daisies last? Like?
3: I think it's just a couple of weeks, wow. maybe two, three weeks. Well, um, so, yeah, it's 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 not a long time. But I, I think the diamorpha might be a little bit longer. Uh, when it's there in the spring, but it's just, it's a beautiful place. And, and also, uh, nearby Panola mountain, if you haven't been there, yeah. uh, is great. Another
2: great place. To yeah. And, around.
3: and you can't, you can't actually go on the mountain at Panola without a guide. Right. Um, which I have done and it's
2: great. Yeah.
3: I highly, highly recommend How it. How do you,
2: where do you find a guide? Uh,
3: they, they have an office there. You can actually, I think you can go online and book it there. Oh. Um, and you meet at the, you know, the little, um, there, there's like a little house there that uh-huh. they, they actually have, um, like some snakes and, in, in uh, uh, aquariums and things okay. like that, like local species and, and it's pretty cool. Um, is the guide
2: free? Do you um, care?
3: no, it's not free. I can't recall how much it costs, but it's not like outrageously expensive. Okay. Um, and, and it's really cool cause you get to go somewhere where most people don't go. Right. Um, and it, when you go, you're not going to run into, you, you, you're in a group, uh, but that's it. Um, you're
2: not going to have another group coming in the opposite yeah, direction no. and everybody's uh, trying to, like, get around yeah. each other. And-, <laughs> and and you go
3: to some really cool places and, and be prepared for them to tell you not to step on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'll find signs like that on Arabia Mountain, too, but there's nobody right. there pointing it out to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's like, but Arabia Mountain, if you have not been uh, and you live in Atlanta, you really, really should go. Yeah. It's it's one of my favorite places. Um, yeah, truly it's truly one of a kind. There isn't anything like it elsewhere. No, yeah. there really isn't. I mean, it's it's all part of the same sort of uh, underlying structure as Stone Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all that, Panola Mountain and Arabia Mountain. I think- um, but there just aren't these things don't exist everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think it's a great thing for, for every Atlanta to go and, and it's and a pretty
2: easy drive outside of the city too. It is. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I always am like pleasantly surprised. I always like mentally think it's going to take way longer. And then once we get there, I'm like, Oh, that wasn't that bad. And it's always worth it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's not bad, especially, I mean, I, I live on the East side of the town, so that makes it even easier. Um, so, and, and there's, parking can be an issue depending on when you go, uh, but there are a couple of different places you can park, uh, for Arabia mountain. There's, there's mm-hmm. the one that's right there at the, uh, aware, um, the wildlife, um, they, they take care of wildlife. I can't remember the exact name of it. Um, but, and then there's another entrance further up. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you can usually find parking, uh, but if you go early, that's the best that's the key. Yeah. yeah go go early do that (laughs) um uh but uh yeah check out daisy days at arabia mountain it it will totally be worth it uh it's it's just one of the prettiest places around um and also uh we wanted to talk about uh chops lobster bar which has reopened after a fire
2: yeah so uh there was a fire there pretty big fire uh two alarm fire in january of this year and uh the the vast majority of the damage that was done to the restaurant was actually water damage used from the water used to put out the fire. But they've been closed since then. And uh it's it's an iconic Atlanta restaurant. They've been open since 1989. It's part of the Buckhead Life restaurant group. They also own Kima and Preachy and Atlanta Fish Market and several other well-known, popular Buckhead restaurants. Um and so they've done a lot of work to the space. Um and Does it look different now? So um so they're kind of two different uh, areas of the restaurant there's lobster bar on the first floor and then chops which is a steakhouse is on the top floor so right now the only thing that's actually open is the lobster bar which is pretty much going to look the same as it did before the fire chops is supposed to reopen mid-october and that is going to be a completely renovated space it's expanded they have a new patio they have new areas of the dining room, um, and then the menu is actually going to be. Uh, there are going to be a few additions to the menu, including the addition of an octopus appetizer that is also from the menu at Kima. It's really popular and it's delicious. Uh, if you have yes, not tried it, it is. I I've ha- I've highly had recommend it at Kima, and it is. It's amazing. so good. Yeah, it's yeah. to me, it's one of the best dishes in Atlanta. Yep. So yeah, so that so once chops reopens upstairs that's where you'll see a totally new design and and a lot of new additions to the space
0: reservations yet or are they not um
2: i believe well they're taking reservations for lobster bar i don't believe they're taking reservations yet for chops but i'm sure that'll be coming soon you know i i think it's partly strategic that they rush to get it done before the holiday season because that's definitely a favorite for people for holiday parties yeah so they're back and uh I think people are especially excited because uh, Buckhead Diner, which was another Buckhead Life restaurant group eatery, they closed last year. And that was a big blow, I think, to, uh, to Buckhead and, and a lot of people really missed that restaurant. So I think people are happy to see this iconic restaurant that they thought maybe might, might go away after the fire is, mm. is back.
0: Has the diner been torn down yet, or are they still using it for, like, movie sets I I,
2: believe—I know that they were going to be building condos in in that area, which (laughs) was part of the reason that it was—that they closed to begin with. They they sold the land, so I'm not—I haven't been by there recently either. I'm not 100% sure if the building's actually been torn down yet, but I think that that is— the it, was plan. Really pretty,
0: it was a pretty building. It was, it was gorgeous. Up, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they a used
2: shame. it for uh, for yeah filming and yeah. Yeah, photo shoots it was a, over a, a the John years. John's favorite
0: in the nineties, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah a lot of celebrities of went there. Yes, and, yeah. it was
2: a big celebrity hangout, mm. and they had sniff, their sniff. blue blue <laughs> cheese potato chips. Oh yeah, It was very popular. Yeah. And, yeah. I had those, and, and yeah, and it opened around the the time of the Olympics here in '96. So it was uh, that was sort of like put it on the map. But, yeah. Yeah. Oh wow.
3: Well, good. That's it's great that Chops is back because I have never been there, so I'm gonna have to. Uh, oh
2: yeah, you have I'm gonna to have to go. You've lived in Atlanta for. I know it's what, like, like over three decades. I know right? I've, it's, I've it's been
0: amazing. to Chops. I don't think I've been to Lobster Bar. I need to go there. Yeah,
3: I, it's it's weird. I've there. All these places that, I mean. You take I, it I for to, granted
0: sometimes. You're well, always there. So. Yeah. yeah.
3: I, I I have a list of places that I need to go still, and yeah, that's one of that's them. that's on it. Okay. Um, well. Yeah, that's definitely one of it. I, we went, I think, God, a few years ago, finally went to Bones. Hadn't been there. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I did I've that. I've actually never been there. And so, so <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's one of those, those iconic places that, yeah. you, you know everybody needs to visit but uh just yeah. haven't gotten to it put yet. it on your list <laughs> yeah it is, it is definitely on my list yeah that's just a sample of what we're working on so stay tuned in the coming weeks for more of the new podcast format which will include this and much more In the meantime, we'll be revisiting some of our favorite interviews from our first four years, and as we do that, we'll continue our mission to get you ready for the weekend with a roundup of some of the fun, entertaining, and educational things to do in and around Atlanta in the coming days. Let's get started with a couple of those events. The Atlanta Food and Wine Festival returns for a second year at Atlanta's historic 4th Ward Park on Saturday and Sunday, September 17th and 18th. The all-inclusive food, wine, and cocktail tasting event is focused on the South, from Texas to the District of Columbia. Beginning on September 13th, there's a series of intimate dinners hosted by some of Atlanta's top chefs at seven different restaurants, including Talat Market, Lazy Betty, Iberian Pig Buckhead, Redbird, Aziza, Hattie Bees, and the Americano. And we'll also take a look at more food and drink-centric festivals online at AJC.com. Harry Potter, one of the most prominent book and film franchises of the past two decades, will be celebrated in downtown Atlanta starting next month with a new immersive experience. Created by Atlanta-based Imagine Exhibitions, Harry Potter, the Exhibition, will take place at 200 Peachtree Street, where Macy's used to be located. Advanced tickets go on sale September 28th, and the exhibit will open on October 21st. An end date has not been announced, and ticket prices will be released soon. Tickets will go on sale Wednesday, September 28th, but fans who are a part of the Harry Potter fan club will receive exclusive access to pre-sale tickets on September 25th. Find out more in the Thursday, September 8th living section in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution or check out the story online at AJC.com. Stay tuned for more events later in the podcast and after the featured conversation, we'll take a look at what the AJC is bringing you this week, both online and in print. But first, we'll hear from a Georgia farmer in a conversation that was part of our Georgia On My Plate series of stories in 2021. Where does your food come from? Sure, ultimately, you might be getting it from a grocery store or maybe even a farmer's market, but before it gets there, someone had to cultivate it, grow it, get it ready for that market. Last year, the AJC took a look at some of the Georgia folks providing our food with the Georgia On My Plate series. On this week's podcast, we'll revisit a conversation food and dining editor Legaio Figueres had with Elana Richards of Levity Farms in Madison. And keep in mind that the interview we're about to hear is from last year, So any dates and events that may come up are in the past. Hi, Lagaya.
4: Hi, Shane. How are you?
3: I'm great. And you?
4: I'm great. I've been visiting farms out in the fresh air.
3: (laughs) That's nice. I I love that. So so you've been talking with some of these people as well about uh, what they do.
4: Yeah, this is a really exciting um, series that we started in February, and it's going to run through January of next year. Um, in partnership with Kroger, um, it enables us to go around around the state uh, and talk with growers and producers about you know what they grow and also you know how they're producing it. Um, so far, it's taken us to to three farms. I visited. Decimal Place Farm, that's a goat farm up in, uh, or down in Conley, Georgia, not far from, you know, downtown Atlanta, really. Right. And that's run by Mary Rigdon um, and she uses goat milk to make delicious cheese. Um Last month I visited Grateful Pastures in Mansfield, Georgia. That's the only USDA certified organic pastured poultry farm in Georgia. That sounds like, a, that's a lot of words, but it's important. Um, And it was uh, established just in 2015 by Sean Terry and his wife, Sabrina. They're so, so sweet. And they raise broilers for meat and then also, um, you know, laying chickens for their eggs. And then most recently, I was at Levity Farms, actually not too far away from Grateful Pastures. That's in Madison. And I spoke with uh, the owners, Alana and Zach Richards, their husband and wife, they're first generation farmers. Um, and they just got 10 acres of land there and they are a permaculture farm um, and they grow primarily um, vegetables. And so, you know, we're, yeah, we're going around the state and every month it's a different crop. Um, it's a different people. And it's just been really fascinating to get up close and personal Um, with the food. In some cases, this food, you know, that you can, you'll find it at farmers markets or some grocery stores, but um, to see the people behind, you know, the the food and how much care and love they put into this, bringing us this food has been um, terrific.
3: Yeah, well, I I love this because, you know, the we try to eat more local. It's, it's better for, for everything, really. It's better for us. It's better for the environment. It's, it's just a better way to eat. And it's great to hear from some of these people who are making things locally.
1: Right. Well, and I, even learning about their techniques, just as, for instance, you know, with, with Levity Farm and permaculture, it really isn't something that I was necessarily familiar with. Um, sometimes people refer to it as like, is it sort of like a hippie organic lifestyle slash farming? And maybe so, but um, it's really fascinating to understand the idea behind it of taking a really holistic approach to to farm life itself. So it's not just put planting something in the ground, but how you know how it's done. Um, and some of them, with um, with both Levity Farms, the permaculture farm, and Grateful Pastures, just d- discussions about um, long-term care for the soil. You know that there's not an idea of I want to. I mean, you know, until this and and I'm only gonna use this farm for a limited amount of time. It's the great desire to to be on the land for a very long time and be stewards of it. So, yeah. um, you know, I think that's an interesting, you know, and with Grateful Pastures too, it's interesting with some of these um, independent farmers that I've spoken with, learning about some of the limitations that they have in being independent farmers. And with Grateful Pastures, the, the poultry farm, because they are USDA certified organic, um, they are, they're limited in terms of where you can take that meat to be processed. And so Terry had been driving up north
4: Um, out of state um, to Tennessee in order to have that happen. And if you can imagine that, you know, road trip every six weeks sure cuts into what the time that you could spend on the farm. And so he actually just this month um, um, is one of two people that that is behind an independent processing facility. The first one that we have in Georgia called Atlanta processing, Atlanta poultry processing. And so it's the first and only USDA inspected poultry processing facility in Georgia um, that's open to independent farmers and even backyard chicken farmers. Um, But it's exciting that it's like, well, when they see this problem, he's, you know, trying to be part of a solution that um, can ultimately more mean, you know, more sustainable um, farming, and hopefully even to um, get other folks on board with organic farming, um, certified organic farming, um, that makes it viable.
3: Yeah, that's great. And, and the thing is, even if all of these uh, environmental issues and all of that do- doesn't matter to some folks. The, the end product always tastes better, generally. So,
1: <laughs> so it's, really you good. know,
3: even if you don't care about that, you might want to care about how your food tastes. And and this stuff is is just better.
4: Yeah, it's terrific. It's great. And, you know, so in partnership with Kroger, uh, besides these stories that, um, you know, um, we're doing once a month and there are videos, the one from Grateful Hashers is pretty cool because we even have this drone going above the, the farm. So you can really get a look at it. But um, we also have recipes, and those have been developed by Kroger, um, and they're using the products that are grown by the um, uh, the type of crop or, um, or product that's that's um, grown by by these farmers. So yeah, we get um, stories and videos, and uh, now podcasts.
3: <laughs> awesome. Well, that's great. So, well. well- why don't we uh, go ahead and hear from some of these farmers
4: yeah so we are going to be talking with ilana richards from levity farms in madison to learn more about permaculture and what they do on their 10 acres awesome
3: thanks so much for bringing us this lagaya
4: absolutely thank you i'm joined now by ilana richards to talk about permaculture and how she and zach apply the principles and practices of this type of farming at levity farms Hi, Alana, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Lagaya, thanks for having me. You bet. Um, I wish I could actually be back at your farm right now. That was terrific to visit. And that's why I'm really asking you uh, here today because um, I'm, I, I learned so much when I visited. And I think most of all, I learned so much about permaculture, which I, you know, I, I really didn't know much about it. So, for folks who are newbies like like I was, um, can you give us an overview of, of, of permaculture? So, permaculture is
5: a term that describes an entire collection, a, a toolkit uh, essentially, um, that is comprised of an entire collection of practices and principles and methods based on for for living based on observations from um, natural systems so this applies to agriculture but it can also apply to building a home to building a community to running essentially it can apply to running small communities Um, we just specifically focus a lot on the agricultural implementation of permaculture principles at
4: the farm and now it's not necessarily new right this dates back of quite a few decades Actually, uh, so permaculture, the, the word permaculture
5: was coined, I believe it was the late 1970s by Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. But actually, these observations of natural systems have been guiding practices of different communities and different people for, I mean, centuries since the beginning of time. Um, it was only recently in the late 20th century all the all, called permaculture and, um, kind of presented to the public as a, uh, I mean, um, as, as a a written collection of principles and methodology, but these are ancient practices.
4: And, and for you and Zach specifically, how did both of you become advocates of permaculture? What sort of, you know, training or background led you to, to become permies as they say? (laughs) Well, Zach
5: um zach zach and i have been friends since 2009 when we met and a few years later uh, i had just graduated from college and zach was studying uh, horticulture at a small college up in north georgia and he was interning at a farm in north georgia in uh, jasper specifically and We were still friends, and we kept in touch. And he called me one day and said, "Alana, I'm I'm, I've been working at this farm. This guy, this farmer Jamie, he's really cool. He knows all about permaculture. You got to come see it." And I was like, "Okay, you know, I just graduated, wasn't sure what I wanted to do tomorrow, so I went to go see him." And it was, I mean, it was it's unfair how beautiful this farm was that I went to go visit. I mean you know, it was, it was mid, it was early to mid spring. So the flowers were starting to bloom and, you know, butterflies and bees are flying everywhere. It was just such a beautiful place. And we started, I I decided I wanted to move there too. And the two of us worked, he was more working in the field. Um, but I was working with working there and offsite as well. But we, we started learning about growing food and learning a little bit about permaculture practices. And we just decided that, Uh, So there there was a farmer and his wife and their daughter all living there. And Zach and I would talk every day about what an amazing life this farmer was giving to his daughter. And, And the farmer and his wife were giving to their daughter. And they just lived. It seemed they were really just living in harmony with the seasons. And they were eating fresh food and getting fresh air. And Zach and I grew up in and around Atlanta. So leaving this, you know, experiencing a healthy life that was completely different from the hustle bustle of the city was just really inspiring. And we decided we both wanted that lifestyle for ourselves. And then we kind of looked at each other and we were like, well, why don't we do it together then? (laughs) We already knew each other and loved each other from being friends for so many years. And so we just decided, all right, well, let's start making plans to learn more about permaculture and raise a family on a farm together. Here we are.
4: And so you started out actually renting land up in um, Milton for a few years, right? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, we started, uh, we kind
5: of land shopped a little bit. Uh, We had a friend who was working on the business, working on farming with us at the time. And we worked on, we had some other friends who were renting property out west. And we, you know, practiced sort of practice farming essentially out on their property we looked for some other land kind of shopped around a little bit and zach's my husband zach's dad um, has a friend who got wind of what we were doing or what we were hoping to do and he called us up and said hey guys i've got a couple acres in milton um i would love to see a farm there if you guys are interested and so we we're, we're like well it's a great location it had re- it had previously been horse pasture so the soil was really fresh and just begging to be farmed and we said okay let's let's get started and we built the business there. Um, it was a rental it was a non permanent situation and we knew that we knew from the beginning that we eventually wanted to buy our own land and live on site um, and at the. Pre, at the Milton location, living on site was not an option. It would never become ours. And because it was not a permanent location, we couldn't, we didn't feel it was smart to invest in um, semi to permanent infrastructure or, you know, long term perennials and fruit trees and those kinds of systems that are all part of our permaculture plans. So we spent a few years farming there, renting there, building the business. Um, and getting a name for ourselves, learning about our farming practices, what we like, what works for us, um, deciding on how we wanted to operate the business, and all the while we would spend our winters, when the field requires less physical labor, we would spend our winters looking for land and shopping around for land. Um, We actually found a couple different properties over the years that we got pretty close to Pretty close to deciding we wanted to buy, but at the last minute they just didn't work out. Um, and last, well, now it's two Februarys ago. So February of 2020, we were at a conference, uh, an agriculture. Actually, it was a Georgia Organics conference in Athens. And while we were in Athens, we had a friend who said, "Hey, why don't why don't you look for land out this way?" You know, we we had always been looking up north toward the mountains. We always just knew we wanted to farm you know somewhere on the way between here and Asheville or here in Tennessee somewhere up in the northwest mountains and so we never even considered looking out this way but in February of 2020 we thought well why not what does it hurt to just look and so we started looking and we found this little town called Madison and it's is about 30 to 40 minutes south of where we were in Athens so we drove by to check it out fell completely in love with the town and also happened to find a lot of really promising land at really um approachable prices at the time. And so that was in February. And then in early March, I'm sorry, in in that was early February. So late February, we met Scott, who owns the land, owned the land that we purchased. Um, obviously, we hadn't purchased it yet. And he is a farmer who is retiring and moving down to south georgia and wants to sell his farmland but he was looking he was hoping it's it's a 10 acre tract tract, and he was hoping to find a, a young enthusiastic farming family that would because he's very passionate about growing food and so he was hoping to essentially pass the land on to the next generation of farmers who would really appreciate the land and all the work and love that he's put into the property here And we were hoping to find kind of an older farmer who was ready to pass that land on. So without really trying, we stumbled upon this amazing farm successorship opportunity. And um, that was in early March of 2020. And right as the pandemic was about to hit, we were thinking, okay, I mean, before we even were were really thinking much about the pandemic, we we were getting ready to put our tomatoes in the ground And we were still at the Milton property and Zach and I looked at each other and we said, well, tomatoes stay in the ground for the better part of the year. I mean, they'll be in the ground for several months. So do we want to see if maybe Scott will let us go ahead and plant our tomatoes in the Madison property? Um, Just sort of like a good faith thing. And we talked to him and he was he said, well, the contract isn't signed on the sale yet. But if you want to plant your tomatoes here, if it doesn't work out, then I'm just going to keep your tomatoes. And so. Um, We knew we were, you know, we knew we were moving forward with plans to buy the property at that point.
3: This is Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We'll continue with more of our conversation with Alana Richards, but first, here's more of our list of things to do and see. Years after 9-11, Americans still struggle to process it and salute those lost in meaningful ways. Ryan Walls, executive director of 9-11 Day, believes it's a day of service. We've changed our approach over the years, he said. It's not from an angle of anger. Really, the approach is to try to rekindle and inspire those feelings of unity, compassion, and service that arose in the aftermath of September 11th, he says. Throughout Metro Atlanta, there are activities designed to remember, honor, educate, and help. Read about all the ways that Atlantans will be marking the anniversary and how you can participate in our look at 9-11-related events in and around Metro Atlanta. You'll find it on AJC.com. Part of the same 400 million year old granite outcropping as Stone Mountain and Panola Mountain in Stockbridge, Arabia Mountain is located in Stonecrest, east of Atlanta, in the Davidson-Arabia Mountain Nature Preserve. Surrounded by wetlands, pine forests, streams, and lakes, the Granite Mountain rises to 955 feet above sea level. The surface conditions make it difficult for most plants to grow, but interspersed among all that granite are islands of hardy vegetation like moss, lichen, and prickly pear cactus, and twice a year, the mountain puts on a spectacular show of color. In April, a carpet of dramatic red diamorpha, also called elf or pine, blooms across the mountain, and for two to three weeks in mid-September, the bald mountain comes alive with mounds of yellow, an event affectionately known as Daisy Days. Find out how to experience this annual burst of beauty in this week's Living and Arts section in the Sunday, September 11th, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, or read the story online at AJC.com and in the Sunday e-paper. Now it's time for this week's adoptable pet from the folks at Lifeline who run the Fulton and Decab shelters along with the Lifeline Community Animal Center. Are you a fan of frequent cuddles and big slobbery kisses? Then you have to meet the lovable hunk Mushu. He's one mushy teddy bear of a dog, and he's more than happy to make new friends with people and other pups. He may not know his own size, given his affinity for leaning the full weight of his body against his favorite humans, but that's just his way of spreading the love. Three-year-old Mushu knows his basic cues and can't wait to discover all that life has to offer in a loving home of his own. Mushu is available to adopt or foster from the Lifeline Community Animal Center at 3180 Presidential Drive in Atlanta. You'll find a photo of Mushu and a direct link for more info on the story page for this podcast on AJC.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing.
0: Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. how bet get 30, 30, bet get 30, bet get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: This is Access Atlanta from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The facts matter now more than ever. Get unlimited digital access to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution so you know what's really going on. And you're helping us fulfill our mission to bring you the news that's important to you. Subscribe today at subscribe.ajc.com podcast and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast to join the community for just 99 cents. Let's head back to our conversation with the folks at Levity Farms.
4: So last year was a big year for you in the sense that you moved your entire, you know, the farm from Milton to uh, Madison. And I know that this past seven months in particular, it's been crazy, not just the move, but also now this new, the, your care for this new, um, new land. Can you tell us you know, what that was like to actually move a farm? Well, Zach would
5: really be better qualified to tell you what the physical moving part was like, because I had a just a few month old baby at the time. And so I wasn't really doing most of the heavy lifting. (laughs) Um, But I can tell you that we were harvesting everything out of the field in the Milton property and selling that at the same time as starting to break down some of the temporary infrastructure and some of the equipment and tools and move them to the new property. Um, I I brought up the fact that the pandemic hit because there was no one on the streets. There's no traffic. So that made the drive. It's like maybe an hour and a half to hour and 45 from Milton to the new farm. So that was kind of like a little gift, a little silver lining of, of the pandemic because Zach was able to make trips back and forth in the truck several times a day. Um, So I know that helped. So there was a lot of driving. We uh, had sold our house. We were living uh, in, in Woodstock near the old farm. We sold that house to have some money to invest into the new property, but there was no place to live on the new property yet. We had plans to build a house, but we hadn't built it. So we were staying with Zach's parents until we had the new house set up. So there was a lot of back and forth. We had stuff at the old farm, stuff at Zach's parents' house, some stuff at the new farm. We were storing some things in my parents' house. Um,
4: It was quite a year. (laughs) And now when I visited you in the spring, um, there's lots of signs of life over there. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about all of the, the products that you grow?
5: Yeah, so we grow a very diverse uh, crop regimen. We've got, um, we focus heavily on salad greens. That's sort of what I like to call our signature move. We grow a few different varieties of lettuce and some cut baby field greens like arugula and baby kale and things like that. In the summertime, we grow, like I said, tomatoes, eggplant, lots of different varieties of peppers, we grow specifically for chefs so we grow a lot of really unique specialty products but we also grow for um, a local market and um, are considering expanding our options for sales Um, but at any given time you can come by the farm and you'll see plenty of lettuce and salad greens growing we do small root vegetables all year: radish, carrots, uh, baby eye turnips, and uh, we. This year, we're ramping up our cut and ornamental flower production, so we'll have a lot of cut flowers coming in. In fact, the zinnias have already started blooming. So, yeah, a l- little bit of everything. We um, we also planted several hundred row feet of potatoes this year. It's our first time growing potatoes, but. Um, We've got all this land and we live here now, so we've got plenty of time to tend to it. So this year we've added potatoes to our regimen.
4: Very exciting. I actually tasted um, uh, your, let's see, I think it was your snap, no, what did I, what was it that I? um... You had some of
5: our, I believe you tried some of our uh, winter peas, The pea shoots. Yes,
4: your pea shoots. Those were delicious. (laughs) Those were delicious. So
5: the the pea shoots are cool. It's actually um, so part of our permaculture inspired practices is that we try to um, intervene in the soil, interrupt the soil food web as little as possible. Um, So we don't do a lot of tilling. In fact, we call ourselves a low till or minimal till farm. For now, eventually we'll be completely no-till, but we're, we're getting there. And instead of tilling the soil, one of the ways that we um, are able to aerate the soil, return nutrients to the soil without a lot of um, synthetic inputs, um, is that we plant cover crop. And one of the cover crops we planted this past fall was winter peas. Um, and we planted it just as a, as a really nice cover crop And in about, maybe it was late February or early March, our daughter Harlan was sitting in the field and I noticed she was munching on the peas and they were just like long pea shoots or tendrils at this point. I noticed she was munching on it and I thought, why is she eating the cover crop? And then I thought, wait a second, pea shoots are delicious. Everybody loves pea shoots. And so we started, we grew the cover crop for the soil, but then we ended up harvesting some of it
4: and selling it so it was a nice little winter bumper for us win-win for everybody you know um when i yeah. visited and zach zach used uh what is it's a very relatable term in terms of saying that your approaches with lean farming methods to mi- quote minimize inputs to maximize outputs and as you mentioned to be you know trying to be low till to get to the point that you could be no till um, It was surprising to me to not see any sort of big equipment on your farm, you know, like hulking massive um, tractors. And one of the things that was fascinating the first time I had seen it was that Japanese paper pot transplanter system that you use. Can you tell our listeners about that? Sure. So it's
5: called the paper pot transplanter. I believe the technology is from Japan, um, but... There, the, there's been a, a company called Paper Pot Co established that's brought it to the West and made the, this equipment more available to us kind of smaller scale farmers. So uh, the idea of minimum inputs and maximum outputs. So we're talking about not only minimizing the amount of physical inputs like um, amendments, different fertilizers and things into the soil. We're also talking about minimizing our energetic input and our labor input. So. Uh, one of the ways that we grow plants is a method called transplanting, which is you start the seeds in a tray in the greenhouse, and when they germinate, you harden them off and then plant them in the ground. Previously, we were planting our seeds in the ground by hand, which means walking down the row, take one out of the tray, bend down, dig a hole, plant it, cover it. Sometimes stand up to take one step to the left and bend back down. It, I mean, it, as you can imagine, it's it was very labor intensive, takes a very long time. It's very tedious our our skills are our time is is very valuable and it's it was a very it was a very bottleneck activity, um, not to mention it was exhausting and this paper pot transplanter is one of the ways that we lean up our operation by minimizing the labor required to plant because instead of a hundred and twenty eight or seventy two cell rigid plastic tray to start the, tr- the seeds in. The paper chain tr- the paper tr- paper pot trays are actually these wound up biodegradable paper chains that you can plant in them just like you would plant a, pl- a rigid plastic transplant tray. The difference is when it's time to put the plants in the ground, you can essentially feed this chain through a machine. It's not, it's not an electrical machine. It's, it looks like a giant scooter that you pull over a bed. Um, and you start to unravel the chain and feed it into this machine, and then you can just pull the the transplanter down the row. And it's got a furrowing tool. It's got these bent bars at the end that a little chain that'll rebury the plants. Uh, that'll replant the transplants into the ground. It takes so manually transplanting an entire hundred foot row of or hundred foot bed of Salanova or of our lettuce, let's say, would take maybe. 45 to an hour depending on who's planting um but with the paper chain the whole bed or even a couple beds could get planted in under 20 minutes um and another benefit to the paper chain is all of the plants are perfectly evenly spaced out because the chain is even lengths um like i said it's less labor so it saves our back it saves our energy it saves time it is it has been a um a real a real boon for our operation
4: right and some of the innovations that i saw there also were uh, novel um very creative in your barn you've got uh now two actually dinged up washing machines that zach turned into salad spinner for your lettuces did that second one get installed uh, we're still working on it. He um, so the second one's a little bit.
5: It's a, it's a nicer machine. Um, it's in better condition than the first one was that Zach kind of learned on. So we want to make sure that we're you know the first machine we took it apart and put it back together a whole bunch of times. This one we want to try to get it as close to right as possible. So. Uh, we're waiting until we have just the right equipment, and we recently ordered the wrong size basket for it. So.
4: It's it's all a learning process. It I, is. I was also impressed with the irrigation system that you set up, and the, well, I guess Zach and and with the help of some electricians, I'm going <laughs> to guess, but that it can be controlled from one central location right oh, by yes. your living, you know, area. With the touch of a switch, and I suppose I, were you even telling me you know at some point you can be able to control that with your phone <laughs> that's the goal
5: is to get it is to get uh, the all the manifolds all the irrigation manifolds on a wireless system, whether it's Bluetooth or internet, so that it connects to our home router so that if we're at a farmer's market and it's getting really hot outside, I can just pull out my phone and flick my finger across the screen and then have the water turn on to cool down the lettuce but we're not quite there
4: yet (laughs) the other thing that stuck out for me when i visited was your house um which uh i mean that was that's built by zach right
5: Zach helped build it. Yes, we, we hired a, a team of
4: contractors um, to build the house. So so you have this house that's technically inside a barn, but one of the unique rooms in the five room house is um, the room near the at the entrance and it has no windows. Can you tell people why? I find that's very fascinating. So we, well, first of all, windows cost money.
5: <laughs> so when we were choosing where to put the windows in the barn house, we thought well what where what makes the most sense to put a window. So we thought we had this one room that was going to be the bedroom and we thought, well, we're going to spend a lot of time in the office, a lot of time in the kitchen. We don't we may not, maybe we don't need a window in the bedroom because really all we do in the bedroom is sleep and you kind of want it to be dark when you sleep anyway. So we get, we, so we, we sleep in the room with no windows. Um, we do keep the door cracked so that when the morning light comes in the kitchen window, we can tell what time of day it is in the
4: mornings. Um, right and and you said that this summer now zach has learned based on last year's findings that um he that nighttime farming is a thing for him oh man man. tell Um, us about that um, because you are in georgia i mean it's hot down here it's very interesting thought so not only are we in georgia
5: but we are in um i actually don't know if this is considered middle georgia or not but we're in zone 8a which is actually one zone south of where we were used to farming and when it, I mean, we've only been here for one summer. And to be fair, last summer, we didn't have the barn set up. We didn't have an air conditioned respite from the heat. Um, but uh, yeah, so in, in the middle, of I mean, there, there are days in the months of even as early as July, but really August and September, even there are days that are so hot that between uh, as early as 11 or noon and Even 6 o'clock p.m., it is almost, it feels like it's almost impossible to get anything done in a healthy way outside. So we've adapted to Georgia, to summer in Georgia. And when the temperatures start to rise, uh, probably starting next month, we'll begin to do a couple days here and there of night farming. But um, we get up a little earlier in the morning, work outside maybe from 5 until about 9.00 come in, have some breakfast, go back out for a couple hours. And then in the middle of the day, we come inside, we do office work. We have a nice, really big lunch. Instead of a big dinner, we do a really big lunch, spend time with the baby, clean the house, just kind of take a nap and rest, and then go back out around eight o'clock. And sometimes I can't make it this long, but sometimes Zach will continue working from eight till till one or two. Um, Just put on a headlamp. Maybe set up some floodlights, go out in the field and prune tomatoes or pick squash beetles or squash bugs or, you know, sometimes harvest in the evening. Um, Just trying to be adaptable and make this business, you know, we're, we're, we're not just, I tell people, we're not focused on making a living. We are focused on building a life. And that's what makes permaculture farming different than more traditional, even small scale local agriculture is we live here. And part of the, the reward is the lifestyle. So at the end of the day, our bank account doesn't look like what the average business owner in America's bank account looks, like, or maybe it does these days. I don't know. But one thing
4: that we are taking home is, is the lifestyle. Right, so. And, and so since you are, you know, you're a year, uh, well, almost a year into kind of setting down roots on that property, what are your plans for the future? Where, where do you hope to see Levity Farms, you know, five, ten years from now? Well, we are in the
5: process of working out getting some more of this property graded so we can plant some fruit and nut trees. And those will take up to, you know, start fruiting and nutting in about five to ten years even. We want to have, so we want to have some orchard space. We want to have some animal systems, so definitely chickens, but that won't take five years. That'll hopefully be this or next year. We eventually want to run some sheep and uh, just continue to expand our perennial, our perennial growths. Um, when we bought the property, it had been cleared because the the Scott, whom we bought it from, was following more traditional agricultural practices, so he just kind of cleared the whole property and made it flat. And we are looking to so, sort of reforest it, plant more trees, cover more of the soil. You know, you don't you don't see a lot of bare soil in nature. You don't see a lot of straight lines, and you don't see a lot of bare soil in nature. That's something Zach always says. So we really want to build the farm back up to a place that looks more like you might see it in, an, in an, a natural landscape. Um, so we are hoping to return a lot of tree and perennial growth to the soil. And um, yeah, maybe maybe dig a pond out and get some ducks here to complete the animal
4: systems. Um, Sounds like paradise. <laughs> Well, Alana, I think we're, we're out of time, but I do want to thank you so much for, for sharing your story, also for letting us visit um, your farm. And for those of you who are looking for more information about Levity Farms, you can check out their website at LevityFarms.com. You can see some photos of what's happening on the farm if you visit them on Instagram at levityfarmsga. And to read more about Levity Farms and other Georgia farmers who are featured in our year-long Georgia On My Plate series, as well as watch videos and find recipes featuring their products, please go to AJC.com forward slash Georgia On My Plate. Alana, thanks again so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Lagaya. Nice chatting with you. You too.
3: The AJC brings you the best of what's happening in and around Atlanta on AJC.com along with deeper looks at trends in arts and entertainment and compelling looks at lost bits of history. Here's a taste of what you'll find there. In 2011, The Walking Dead needed to find a downtown to turn into a fictional city for season three of what was becoming the biggest basic cable show of all time. Michael Riley, locations manager for the AMC Zombie series, thought of the Coweta County town of Senoi with its charming stretch of historic buildings and its distinctive water tower. At McGuire's Irish Pub, dozens of local business owners listened as Riley laid out plans to transform the city into a post-apocalyptic enclave. That meant building a gate entrance with fake sentries that could be rolled in at one end of Main Street during the shoots, forcing customers to enter stores and restaurants from the rear. Some business owners were openly skeptical, wondering how disruptive this would be. However, AMC allayed fears by compensating the locals for the inconvenience. The city council approved the plan. And for almost everyone involved, the gamble paid off. Read Rodney Ho's story about how zombies transformed Sonoy in the Living and Arts section in this Sunday, September 11th, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, or find it online at AJC.com and in the Sunday e-paper. It might be 95 degrees on a sultry summer evening in East Point, but in the Create ATL outdoor space, Much of the heat the crowd felt was coming from the rapid-fire lyrical craftsmanship that ricochets from the Soul Food Cypher circle. The group of 12 or so MCs start with a warm-up open cypher, meaning no specific constraints to letting the lyrics fly, although they do need to stick to 16-bar increments set to music played by a nearby DJ. Soul Food Cypher recently celebrated its 10th year of building community through the power of verse, beats, and creativity. Find out more about the collective and the positive message about the joy, creativity, and camaraderie that freestyle can foster in a story from our partners at ArtsATL. You'll find it online at AJC.com. If you're listening to this podcast on AJC.com, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And you'll be among the first to hear our new format when we relaunch. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen. And I'm your host and the AJC's arts and entertainment editor, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more great interviews and events. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, The Monica Pearson Show.
2: When you look at what you've become, what has it cost you? Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have
0: different color skin, it can be tough.
3: With Atlanta's most powerful influencers, as you've never heard them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.